I've been very upset about the bill Governor Scott signed last week, which affects low-income women's access to reproductive health care services and defunds Planned Parenthood. 
And I've been thinking about that a lot. So when Rick Scott walked in, I thought, oh, great, this is an opportunity to talk to the governor about the bill he signed. And what you can't see on the video is it starts out by me um, just saying, hey, Governor Scott, and him turning to me and me asking him why he signed the uh, the bill that is damaging for women's health care choices. He had a very uh, politician, typical politician reaction. He lied. He said that he didn't uh, doesn't vote on any bills, which is, you know, technically correct but misleading because he signed the bill into law. So then I corrected him that you might not have voted on it, but you signed it into law. You have an executive authority. And then I proceeded to explain to him that that decision is damaging to low-income women such as myself who rely on public health care options. And he very inappropriately responded by um, telling me where I should go to receive my health care as if I shouldn't make that decision myself. And then what you see on the video happens right after that. That's basically when, when things start to escalate. So what was your reaction once you saw the video um, go online? I, I didn't think much of it, honestly. I thought, oh, that's interesting that someone captured that interaction with the governor. I had no idea it would go viral. People's reactions have been very positive, and I think that's because across the board, people support Planned Parenthood and want women to have good access to health care and um, are opposed to politicians like Governor Scott who are working to defund Planned Parenthood and to create obstacles for women having safe and healthy abortion access. And welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. It's Friday, April 8th, 2016, and I thought I'd open up the show with something positive because there will be some really uh, heartbreaking things that have happened in the news, uh, especially here in San Francisco in the Mission. Uh, just blocks away, yesterday, a homeless man was shot and murdered by the SFPD, and then they lied about it, and their witnesses have given accounts uh, that contradict the police uh, as per usual, uh, eyewitnesses who were there and said that the police were lying. So uh, I wasn't planning on starting off the show with that, although I just talked about it. So we'll be talking a little bit more about that and reading some of what the eyewitnesses have had to say. And there was a protest yesterday. Folks went up to the uh, Mission Police Department on Valencia, and folks were marching. And this has been an ongoing problem here in San Francisco and also nationwide with police murdering people and then not being held accountable. So we'll be getting into that. Happy Friday, everyone. But first of all, I wanted to start off with something uh, positive, which is folks standing up to asshole governors and imagine, and I guess elected officials and people who have been put in place and have uh, 
they're in positions of power, and then they use that to end up harming the masses, and that's really disgusting. So whenever people stand up to them, I think that's wonderful. And if we had more of that, what an incredible world this would be for us to live in. So this was just uh, from Florida, a state I've never been to, though I've met many people who have or from there and have left. Uh, Kara Jennings, who ran into Rick Scott, or actually she was at the coffee shop when he came in with, I guess, his entourage. And as we hear before, she started a discussion with him and then ended up letting him have it when he decided to not respond at all and not be truthful um, to uh, what she was saying was problematic in his legislation and signing bills into law that harm people. And I was thinking if this could happen to the other, many other governors of states, uh, imagine what that would be like with Sam Brown back in Kansas, who's pretty, pretty uh, regressive. Uh, progressive might even be a compliment for him. Uh, for Scott Walker in Wisconsin, like those are two folks. And then even McCrory, Pat McCrory in North Carolina, there's, there's quite a few. Jim Spence in Indiana. Uh, keep on naming, naming governors. Uh, but a lot of them have really problematic uh, attitudes, and it's, it's really sad. But the positive thing is that she, she stood up and she said something, and many folks agree with that, and uh, imagine what kind of world that would be. So going into the next story, which is similar, and this is going to be even more hopeful, this is kids. This is going to be the youth, because the youth are going to like lead the revolution, because a lot of us, I'm only in my 30s, but I'm also just kind of, uh, I, I don't want to say I'm done necessarily, I'm doing this, but uh, there is that idea of burnout, certainly when folks either going to actions or protests or being aware of what's happening uh, after years and years, and by no means am I, would I compare myself to folks who've been around longer, I do feel that uh, the youth have a lot more energy and more time on their side, and they haven't been burnt out quite as much as some other folks. Uh, so we have a phone call. We'll just take a moment and see who that is here. Hello, Mutiny Radio. Yeah, Mutiny Radio is Gail. Hi, Gail. Are you guys doing anything interesting over there? Uh, what was that? Are you guys doing anything interesting there? Oh, uh, yeah, we're talking about people in positions of power who are corrupt and how it'll be up corrupt? to the youth. What, what, what corruption are we talking about? Well, specifically Rick Scott in Florida. And then I'm going to read a story about Ted Cruz, how he was going to go to a school in New York and the students threatened to walk out, so he had to cancel his trip, which is great. Oh, you guys like Ted Cruz? Fuck no, he's an asshole. <laughs> you hit on one of my favorite things. I don't like that guy. No, he's terrible. He's terrible. I don't like that guy a lot. No, I don't think anybody does. Well, someone must like him. Did you see that thing where he put out email out or whatever and said that guy was quitting so he can steal some of the votes? Oh, no, I didn't see that. Well, you know, what was that? That, that doctor, uh, before the doctor quit, you know, before that, he was retweeting something in his organization, saying maybe that doctor was going to quit, and then he, he ended up getting some of the votes going over to him. Oh. And I don't like Ted Cruz. No. Oh, man, I don't know what he's... I don't know what he's shoveling, man, but I don't like it. You know, he's over there trying to get people to be his way. Yep. If he wants to be that way, that's his business. Well, he's actually trying to impose the United States to become a religious state. Yeah. <laughs> Who in the hell is he? Yeah. To tell people how they're going to be religious or not. Well, some people want to be sheep and want to be told I mean, what isn't to do. Is that individual choice? 
Yeah, absolutely, it is. And they're supposed to be. So there's what is a, he over there trying to put religion in government for? Yeah, I mean, people have been doing that for a long time. The Reagans did that. There's been folks who have, in the starting in the 80s, the the they ended up kind of agreeing with the with the conservative, the radical right. And the, the conservative Christians, and that's kind of become indoctrinated into a lot of folks in government. And with all the religious freedom bills now being passed, it's just a way to cover up their bigotry. You know, they're all over ISIS because they're doing the same thing, but they're doing it at a higher level. Yep. But basically, this guy's doing the same thing at a lower level. Yep. You know, he's trying to indoctrinate people to have a religious state. Yep. Who in the hell is he? If he wants to be religious and believe in that stuff, that's fine. But don't push on any other people. Amen. Now, Hillary Clinton, I seen her on The View. Okay. And she said she was a Christian, uh-huh. but she's not going to impose her beliefs on other people. Just impose the jails, I guess, and that she helped it should be. fill up. You have your personal beliefs, but don't shove it on someone else. Absolutely. Did you ever watch Ted Cruz, the way he looks so sincere? <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe any of it. Even his kids, even, even the videos of him and his family, his, his daughter just seems to want to get away from him at all times. You should watch him one of these days. He puts on a good act, man. He puts on that sincere act. Yeah. Like he really gives a damn about anybody. Well, it's all lies, and thankfully we can see through it. So yeah, I'm going to go. Yeah. Take Cruz all the way. <laughs> Boo. All the way out of the public eye. How about Maybe that? all the way to the outhouse. Yeah, all the way to the outhouse. <laughs> all right, cool. Bye. Thanks for calling in, Gail. All right. Nice little Ted Cruz bashing session. And uh, I do like the idea of... Uh, it's talking about what's positive and, and lifting people up. However, when there are people in the public eye who are just really have a lot of really terrible ideas that really hurt people, uh, they need to be called out on it. So I'm very happy to call out Ted Cruz. We do not support him on the show. I don't know many people who do support him at all. Even his old roommate, his college roommate, who I believe is now in the entertainment industry, wrote a long list of tweets about what a terrible person Ted Cruz was back in the day. And again, you know, if you're going to be a jerk, be a jerk. Just don't go into office and try to uh, control people with your, your, your agenda, which ends up harming many, many people. And he's very reactionary. We don't like that. So here's an article from the Daily News, uh, and this is Ted Cruz's visit to Bronx High School canceled after students threaten a walkout. His views are against ours. And this was written by uh, Chauncey Alcorn and Leonard Green, and this came out on Wednesday, April 6th. Uh, Ted Cruz, ooh, there's a video too. We'll hear that after the read the article. Ted Cruz came to New York Wednesday talking about education, but he's the one who got schooled. The lesson came from a group of Bronx high school students who told the Republican presidential candidate to stay away. Cruz was scheduled to speak at Bronx Lighthouse College Preparatory Academy until students wrote a letter to the principal asking her not to let Cruz come, prompting staffers to cancel the appearance. We told her if he came here, we would schedule a walkout, said Destiny Dominic, 16. Most of us are immigrants or come from immigrant backgrounds. Ted Cruz goes against everything our school stands for. Destiny and her classmates communicated that sentiment to Lighthouse Principal Alex Duggins. A group of students will be leaving during fourth period as an act of civil disobedience in regards to the arrival of Ted Cruz to BLCPA, the letter said. We have all considered the consequences of our actions and are willing to accept them. 
The presence of Ted Cruz and the ideas he stands for are offensive, the latter said. His views are against ours and are actively working to harm us, our community, and the people we love. The letter called Cruz misogynistic, homophobic, and racist. Um, and their letter struck a chord. Your points are eloquently argued. In fact, so eloquently argued that upon reading your email, Corey Whitaker, the CEO of Lighthouse Academies, has agreed to cancel the visit, Duggins replied. I'd like to commend you and the other students for your commitment to your beliefs and values. I believe that I would not have been able to get the visit canceled without your actions. During a Bronx appearance, Cruz talked about the benefits of charter schools and the need for school choice. And uh, here's the full text of the student's email below. Hello, Ms. Duggins. A group of students will be leaving during fourth period as an act of civil disobedience in regards to the arrival of Ted Cruz to BLCPA. We have all considered the consequences of our actions and are willing to accept them. We respect you and all the staff at BLCPA as well as the expected guests. But we want you to understand that as passionate students, we have ideas and principles that should be heard and respected. This walkout isn't a reflection of our discontent with BLCPA, but our opportunity to stand up for our community and future. This walkout is taking place because we as students all share a common idea. The presence of Ted Cruz and the ideas he stands for are offensive. His views are against ours and are actively working to harm us, our community, and the people we love. He is misogynistic, homophobic, and racist. He has used vulgar language, gestures, and profanity directed at a scholar and staff members, along with harassing and posing threats to staff and scholars according to the disciplinary referral slip. This is not to be taken kiddingly or as a joke. We are students who feel the need and right to not be passive to such disrespect. That is awesome. And that gives me a lot of hope uh, for all the, all the youth out there. And here, let's hear the protest uh, that they had for Ted Cruz. And uh, here we go. And you can find this on the Daily News, as well as the uh, Weekly Review page, which is on Facebook. You can find that at facebook.com slash weekly rev. And uh, the video here is just setting up one moment. So we'll be having a, a guest call in later, and that's uh, Tracy Belford. And here we go. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, this is an immigrant community. I don't really want to hear him speak, and I don't think we all should hear him speak at all. So I just wanted to hear the folks kind of yelling at him, and that kind of goes in, in line with what we were hearing before with uh, Kara Jennings speaking up to Governor Scott. And I would love to see more of this. Let's put that into the universe. More folks uh, speaking out against corrupt people. Speaking of which, perhaps it's time we go into our next uh, segment. Oh, but there's more. Oh, I like to do I like to do segues, but this is something else that uh, that's up here, and uh, 
uh, everything's connected because there we live in a we live there's so much that's problematic in the world certainly and there's people in positions of power that lock up people and Gail mentioned Hillary Clinton and Hillary Clinton and her husband were big supporters of uh, prisons and here on the show I can only speak for myself but uh, not a fan of prisons I've never met anyone who's been to prison who thought it helped and I'm a prison abolitionist. And so there is going to be a call to action against slavery in America. And this is uh, prisoners from across the United States have just released this call to action for a nationally coordinated prisoner work stoppage against prison slavery to take place on September 9th, 2016. So we're going to read that. And uh, yeah. And this comes from, it's been passed around the internet. And this is one website that's uh, itsgoingdown.org. And there's, there's quite a lot of different sites out there where one can find information. So I'm going to read this. Uh, prisoners from across the United States have released this call to action for a nationally coordinated prisoner work stoppage against prison slavery to take place on September 9th, 2016. And this was released on April 1st. Uh, this is a call to action against slavery in America. In one voice, rising from the cells of long-term solitary confinement echoed in the dormitories and cell blocks from Virginia to Oregon, we prisoners across the United States vow to finally end slavery in 2016. On September 9th of 1971, prisoners took over and shut down Attica, New York State's most notorious prison. On September 9th of 2016, we will begin an action to shut down prisons all across this country. We will not only demand the end to prison slavery, we will end it ourselves by ceasing to be slaves. In the 1970s, the U.S. prison system was crumbling. In Walpole, San Quentin, Soledad, Angola, and many other prisons, people were standing up, fighting, and taking ownership of their lives and bodies back from the plantation prisons. For the last six years, we have remembered and renewed that struggle. In the interim, the prisoner population has ballooned and technologies of control and confinement have developed into the most sophisticated and repressive in world history. The prisons have become more dependent on slavery and torture to maintain their stability. Prisons are f prisoners are forced to work for little or no pay. That is slavery. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution maintains a legal exception for continued slavery in U.S. prisons. It states, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. Overseers watch over our every move, and if we do not perform our appointed tasks to their liking, we are punished. They may have replaced the whip with pepper spray, but many of the other torments remain. Isolation, restraint positions, stripping off our clothes, and investigating our bodies as though we are animals. Slavery is alive and well in the prison system, but by the end of this year, it won't be any more. This is a call to end slavery in America. This call goes directly to the slaves themselves. We are not making demands or requests of our captors. We are calling ourselves to action. To every prisoner in every state and federal institution across this land, we call on you to stop being a slave, to let the crops rot in the plantation fields, to go on strike and cease reproducing the institutions of your confinement. This is a call for a nationwide prisoner work stoppage to end prison slavery starting on September 9th, 2016. They cannot run these facilities without us. Nonviolent protests, work stoppages, hunger strikes, and other refusals to participate in prison routines and needs have increased in recent years. The 2010 Georgia prison strike, the massive rolling California hunger strikes, the Free Alabama Movement's 2014 work stoppage have gathered the most attention, but they are far from the only demonstrations of prisoner power. 
large, sometimes effective hunger strikes have broken out at Ohio State Penitentiary, at Menard Correctional in Illinois, at Red Onion in Virginia, as well as many other prisons. The, the budgeting resistance movement is diverse and interconnected, including immigrant detention centers, women's prisons, and juvenile facilities. Last fall, women prisoners at Yuba County Jail in California joined a hunger strike initiated by women held in immigrant detention centers in California, Colorado, and Texas. Prisoners all across the country regularly engage in myriad demonstrations of power on the inside. They have most often done so with convict uh, solidarity, building coalitions across race lines and gang lines to confront the common oppressor. 45 years after Attica, the waves of change are returning to America's prisons. This September, we hope to coordinate the, and generalize these protests to build them into a single tidal shift that the American prison system cannot ignore or withstand. We hope to end prison slavery by making it impossible, by refusing to be slaves any longer. To achieve this goal, we need support from people on the outside. The, a prison is an easy lockdown environment, a place of control and confinement where repression is built into every stone wall and chain link, every gesture and routine. When we stand up to these authorities, they come down on us. And the only protection we have is solidarity from the outside. Mass incarceration, whether in private or state-run facilities, is a scheme where slave catchers patrol our neighborhoods and monitor our lives. It requires mass criminalization. Our tribulations on the inside are a tool used to control our families and communities on the outside. Certain Americans live every day under not only the threat of extrajudicial execution, as protests surrounding the deaths of Mike Brown, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, and so many others have drawn long overdue attention to, but also under the threat of capture, of being thrown into these plantations, shackled, and forced to work. Our protest against prison slavery is a protest against the school-to-prison pipeline, a protest against police terror, a protest against post-release controls. When we abolish slavery, they'll lose much of their incentive to lock up our children. They'll stop building traps to pull back those who have been released. When we remove the economic motive and grease of our forced labor from the U.S. prison system, the entire structure of courts and police of control and slave catching must shift to accommodate us as humans rather than slaves. Prison impacts everyone. When we stand up and refuse on September 9th, 2016, we need to know our friends, families, and allies on the outside will have our backs. This spring and summer will be seasons of organizing, of spreading the word, building the networks of solidarity, and showing that we're serious and what we're capable of. Step up, stand up, and join us. Against prison slavery, for liberation of all. And for more information, updates, and organizing materials and opportunities at the following websites, you can go to supportprisonerresistance.net, freealabamamovement.com, and iwoc.noblogs.org. Uh, stay tuned, and we will be back with some more stories.
welcome back to the weekly review. That was L107. Open up the show with a song by Idlewild from back in the day. By back in the day, I mean 1999, maybe, called uh, These Wooden Ideas. So, going to be getting into some more stories about the local police force. And we're also going to be talking, there was a clip that was shared online about officers of the New York Police Department who went ahead and uh, admitted that uh, they're the, that force is corrupt as well. So we'll be hearing from them. And first of all, I'm going to play a, a clip about feminism, about white feminism. There's a uh, the, the clip pretty much explains it. For there's some folks who are aware of this, some folks are not. So I thought I would just uh, play this, and then we'll be back. I'll be back with a little bit more news, including some positive news. Might as well just talk about it now. One good thing, uh, New York and California, two states that I'm proud to have lived in for the majority of my life, uh, have decided to uh, sign a $15 minimum wage into law, and this was on April 4th. So $15 an hour, still not enough. However, it's a step in the right direction, so we should be happy happy for what we have, right? Good things. So, and also in Chicago, the, the teachers went on strike, which is pretty cool. And they have some videos online. You can find this. Uh, the streets are just totally uh, crowded with people uh, marching, which is beautiful. And again, sometimes the media refuses to report it. Or if they do, they look at the weird. There was one video that even I posted or the photo I posted and the media's uh, their, their comments on this was like, oh, so now traffic's going to be even more backed up. Uh, and when you have like thousands of people perhaps more than that, in the streets, um, perhaps the first thing you should think of in, isn't necessarily the, the traffic, but the fact that these many, this many people have come together to say something, and especially when it's teachers who should be honored and respected and given what they deserve, uh, maybe you shouldn't, shouldn't think about traffic. So here's a little bit of clip. A little bit of clip. Here's a clip, and I'll be back in just a moment. Swift's Twitter exchange or when people critique HBO's girls. But what does it mean? Basically, white feminism is feminism that ignores intersectionality. So not all feminists who are white are white feminists. But most white feminists are white because white people just don't have to think about things like race on a daily basis. And we're not just pulling the race card. White feminism excludes the experiences of basically anyone who's not white, cis, and straight. Here's why that's so problematic. First, it assumes the way white women experience misogyny is the way all women experience misogyny. And that's just not true. White feminism aims to close the wage gap between men and women. But what it fails to recognize is that most of the time, Latina and black women make even less than white women. And police brutality should be viewed as a feminist issue, but it doesn't affect white women the way it affects women of color. If Sandra Bland had been a white woman, would a simple traffic stop have resulted in an arrest? Would she be viewed as a loud, angry black woman? Would she be dead? White feminism ignores the role that whiteness plays in creating things like beauty standards. For example, this is okay, but this isn't. White women are most often the faces of feminism. Tina Fey, Tara Swift, Amy Schumer have been able to break into industries that have been dominated by cis white men. But black women, women of color, we face barriers that white women don't. Critiquing white feminism isn't about silencing those women. It's about opening up space for even more diverse voices to be heard. And that's great for everyone. Being a white feminist doesn't make you a bad person. It just means you have a lot to learn. 
The most important thing any white feminist can do is educate herself and listen and engage with the experiences of women of color without silencing them. Because sometimes as white ladies, we just have to shut the fuck up. And there you have it. Uh, so coming up, we'll be talking about police. I'm going to pull up this, the, uh, the clip of officers of the NYPD, and then we'll be talking about what's happening here in San Francisco. And before I do that, uh, I'm going to read uh, from Malia Cohen, who is on the Board of Supervisors, and this is all, it's all connected. And so uh, this is a statement that, that she released on April 5th. Uh, statement. Supervisor Malia Cohen and Board President London Breed's statement regarding recently revealed text messages by SFPD officers. San Francisco. At the full Board of Supervisors meeting today, Supervisor Malia Cohen and Board President London Breed issued the following joint statement regarding the recently revealed racist and homophobic text messages sent by a new group of San Francisco police officers. It has barely been a year since the last time we issued a joint statement about racist and homophobic text messages exchanged by SFPD officers. In that time, we witnessed the tragic shooting of Mario Woods, the launch of multiple investigations, our community gripped by protests and pain, and, in a maddening twist, officers from the last texting scandal back on duty in SFPD uniforms. When is enough enough? We talk about implicit bias training, yet time and again, we are confronted with explicit bias by those who are sworn to protect the community. This behavior cannot be tolerated without consequence. The city must rededicate itself to police reform. As supervisors, we have written June's ballot measure to require independent investigations of all officer-involved shootings. We pushed for and helped fund body cameras for every officer. We called for the federal investigation into Mario Woods' shooting, and we led the effort to stop the proposed $300 million jail. But there is clearly more work to do. We need more diversity and bias training, culturally competent community relations, data collection, independent investigations, accountability, and transparency. And as we recruit more officers, it's imperative we continue to fight for increased diversity on the force. We urge the police commission and chief to seek the fullest possible disciplinary action for the officers involved in this recent action, and we will work with the mayor, the department, and community stakeholders to create an action plan to prevent these incidents from ever happening again. And this was on Tuesday, and then Thursday, yesterday, there's another shooting. So uh, more needs to be done, and quickly. Uh, yes, so I'll be getting into what's been happening here in San Francisco. There's also, if you go to the Weekly Review page, I post stories quite often. And one is, uh, Republicans are killing women, U.S. maternal death rate climbs, female deaths rise in GOP counties. And if you hear any of these folks speak, the anti-choice people, of course, not giving people access to health care is going to lead to death. So folks can go there and check out that article in full. And uh, there's also... Um, there's an article about folks in, in Mississippi who are standing up uh, to the, because Mississippi also decided to pass their anti-LGBT legislation. So there are folks, Jackson officials, who are making a stand against religious freedom bill. Uh, Phil Bryant, another governor who probably can get yelled at. So there's an article about that as well, people standing up. There's also an article in Shock to Wall Street and Washington, Puerto Rico moves to suspend payments on $72 billion public debt. That's there as well. 
And there's also an article in The Advocate uh, that is has been uh, uh, written by, uh, let's see here. It's uh, Kasima Weidman. Uh, white trans women affiliated with big name nonprofits like the Human Rights Campaign, Equality North Carolina, and the American Civil Liberties Union were allowed to speak briefly on the ways the bill would affect them. And this is, of course, in North Carolina. Uh, many pointed to their own respectable bodies, post-gender affirming surgery, and hormone therapy. These women bragged about how well they passed as cis and implored the General Assembly to admit them into the cult of white womanhood and see their lives as worth protecting. And this is an article from theadvocate.com. In the article, it's on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash weeklyrev. And the article is, Y'all White Queers Better Quiet Down in North Carolina. Uh, so folks can check out that as well. Here at, at Mutiny Radio, we're doing some fundraising. You can check out the links on my Facebook page as well as the weekly review page. You can stop by here or check out mutinyradio.fm for ways you can help out and help fund the station. And another article here. Uh, more whites smoke weed, but NYC spent $440 million targeting blacks and Latinos. And that article uh, can be found at uh, diver- it's, uh, diversityinc.com. You can find that article as well as on our Facebook page. Uh, there was a protest in Oakland by the new Uber headquarters uh, where it's going to be. That was in City Hall. Also, the Panama Papers. We won't have time to make it today, but this will be an ongoing thing. A lot of information has been released. Even Edward Snowden has said, this is a lot of information here. Uh, and it's pretty much the, the, the 1%, the infamous 1% uh, who avoid paying taxes. They've been hiding their money. And so a lot of documents have been released uh, stating who's involved, including Putin and some of his his friends. <sighs> Another article, uh, Philadelphia LGBT community asks, what or who killed transgender woman Nizam Morris 10 years ago? And this is on at glad.org. And I'll read a little bit about this. Uh, Nizam Morris, a transgender woman, sustained a fatal head wound while in the custody of Philadelphia police officers. And this was uh, on December 22nd, 2002, and she died in the hospital. Uh, Circumstances surrounding her death were never fully understood by the community, and now 10 years later, the community and Morris's family are demanding further investigation into the current probes being handled by the local DEA office and Philadelphia Police Internal Affairs Department. Media coverage surrounding Morris in the coming months of her death was fair and respectful, but now her family and the LGBT community at large need the media to question what happened that night. So, yes, uh, quite a quite a bit of that. So now, as promised, I'm going to play the clip of the NYPD officers, and uh, they're being interviewed on NBC. So this is you know pretty big mainstream media. Um, I I appreciate these folks coming forward and talking about what they've been going through. There's one comment one of the officers makes that is a bit misogynistic. Other than that, uh, I think it's definitely worth worth playing and listening to, especially when we're we'll be talking about the police here in San Francisco. You might not see nothing. You're supposed to be visible. You might not see anything, but you go hunting, like bounty hunting for an arrest, locking up some, some old guy, some homeless guy, finding somebody who's riding a bicycle on the sidewalk, who's spitting, and you bring him in. The problem is when you go hunting, when you pull any type of numbers on a police officer to perform, we are going to go to the most vulnerable. The most vulnerable. Of course. We're going to go to LGBT community. We're going to go to the black community. We're going to go to those people that have no vote, that have no power. If we start doing what we're doing in midtown Manhattan, a phone call to the mayor's office is going to be made. That's going to be the end of it. We're the predators, they are the prey. The worst thing you can have is a police officer that needs an arrest for the month. So you're all minorities. How does that make you feel? 
It's, it's horrible. This is something coming from the top that trickles its way down, and this is why we're all here today. We first interviewed Officer Edwin Raymond last month. He says he's been recording conversations with NYPD officials for the past two years in an effort to prove alleged quotas and retaliation against cops who don't rack up numbers. They're breaking the law. Raymond's claims elicited this expletive from the police commissioner. Bull is it bull is my response to that. The commissioner insists his policies are focused on the quality of arrests and summonses, not the quantity. The officer's attorney. Is the commissioner lying? Yes. Commissioner Bratton is lying. How can you prove this? I can prove it with testimony, with recordings, with documents. All he wants us to do is go out there and lock them up. They told us it's, 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 it's easier to get numbers out here because you, you work in this type of community. Are you arresting for stuff that you shouldn't be arresting for? Well, that's why we're here. We don't do it. We refuse, and because of that, we are retaliated against. Because you're not harassing people, you're being punished, you know? And it, it doesn't make for a great work environment because they want you to harass people. The lawsuit claims minority officers are punished more severely than white cops for failing to meet quotas. The city denies it. And the community are suffering the most. Because? Because the pressure, because the quota. Because the police department is like a whore pretending to be a lady. That's what they are. Are you worried? You know, this is a big step to come forward like this. It's not easy. It's not easy. Um, we are the enemies. We are the people that nobody talked to. The culture of the department, we are the rats. That's how they call us. They are, we are the rats that speak out. It takes a lot of guts from a rat to stand where we stand, knowing that our career are basically over the second we speak against such a mafia. Because the police department is a mafia. It's a, it's a big organized mafia. Again, the police commissioner declined to go on camera to address the allegations. The city has asked a judge to dismiss portions of the lawsuit, claiming the officers haven't begun to prove a case either for quotas or racial discrimination. We will have much more on the story at 11, including what the cops say happens when they don't meet the numbers. Chuck? Sure, thank you. And okay, so aside from the comment about uh, the anti- the calling it the whore versus lady comment. I thought that whole segment was really worth um, <clears throat> sharing because that seems to be an epidemic all around. So this is, I'm going to read the first story that kind of broke yesterday about the, the, the murder. And this um, comes from broke ass Stewart's page. And this was written by Alex Mack, uh, editor and community outreach uh, breaking eyewitness account of police shooting homeless man in SF mission. Uh, this article has and will be updated as fresh information comes in. A disturbing eyewitness account of police officers shooting a homeless man between 18th and 19th streets on Shotwell this morning in the Mission District. The man who is known to local residents and the, the man who was known to local residents and was shot with both a rifle and a pistol several times by police officers while at least one local resident watched. Police are claiming that the man was armed with a knife, was shot with, uh, was shot by a non-lethal beanbag rifle before being shot several times with an actual firearm, and that man was taken to SF General in very critical condition. And here's an eyewitness account of a resident who watched the whole thing uh, from his window. Uh, police just shot and killed a homeless man on Shotwell between 18th and 19th. I saw the whole thing. If you've walked down Shotwell, you would have recognized the victim, a Spanish speaker who kicked a ball against the buildings from early morning to late night. He's never caused us or any residents in our building harm. 
I heard get on the ground and ran to the window. Across the street, I could see the victim cowering on the ground while two police officers, one with a rifle pointed at him, approached from at least 30 feet away. To be clear, the victim was on the ground the entire time, head down, visibly shaking. There is no visible aggressive behavior. I am unsure if the victim rose or if the rifle that shot him propelled his body, but he was standing for a moment while the rifle shot several times and the other officer drew a pistol and shot. Blood immediately started spurting, but they continued to shoot. It appeared that several shots did hit him because blood was spurting in different directions. The victim was then on the ground in a pool of blood. Police and fire arrived within moments. They went through the motions of trying to revive him medically, but it was clear that he wouldn't live so much blood. This is incredibly disturbing, and I'd like to pursue filing a report against the police. If anyone knows any organizations that focus on this, please let me know. <sighs> it's not clear if the police's account of the incident uh, contradicts the eyewitnesses. The police claim that the man was armed with a knife and that the, they shot him first with non-lethal beanbags. They also claim that the man did not die on site and is currently in critical condition. Um which have then proved to be lies. Okay, updated for uh, 3.40 p.m. Two more witnesses of the shooting claim the victim did not speak English, was nonviolent, and was not carrying or waving a knife at the time of the incident. They say he had a knife hanging from his belt at the time of the shooting. And uh, let's hear their interview. And that's when the sergeant pulled his gun out and opened fire on him. Was he charging the officers or anything? No, he didn't. He doesn't understand English. He spoke Spanish. Do either of you speak Spanish? Were you able to talk to him? Or? I wasn't trying to get How do you know he didn't speak or understand English? Because he, un he can't understand us when we tell him to stop and stuff. Because I have to go to somebody else who speaks Spanish to translate to to him. So the police said that he was living here for several months on the street here in this block. Did he have a tent that he was living in? And was he generally a friendly sort of guy? Or was he problematic compared to others? Or? He was friendly and everything. I, I mean, all he did was play in the soccer ball. Did he have any close friends or family members to stay with him anybody he was close Just the people who stays right here on shot with So getting back to why we think the cops showed up in the first place, someone called, any idea who or why? Was he acting erratically with the knife? Was he menacing? Was it a big knife? It was a, to me, it was a kitchen knife. Knife. Sorry. One of them butcher knives to be used to cut with. Right. Had you had you used, had you seen him with it before? Said, yeah. You saw him. Did he ever threaten anyone with that knife? No, right. I know you said that he didn't wave it around when the police were there, but did he wave it around before then at all? Was there anything he was doing with it that? He uses it for his safety when he goes out and pick up cans and bottles. Was there a sweep this morning or anything? I heard there was a sweep in the area. 
We heard the hot team was here. Was was he the angry hot, because the, the hot, hot team, team was here? The hot team was actually at our tent about two minutes before this all happened. Say that again? The yeah. hot team was at our tent. They always walk around asking us if we're okay and everything. They told me I had a doctor's appointment this morning that I didn't know about. Uh -huh. But um, I couldn't go. Do you so think one of them may have, may have called it in? I, I don't think so. Because they know That's that we carry... Shaking their heads. So yeah. that wouldn't be a reason for them to call just because you have the knife in your I think it was somebody that either lived across the street or was just walking and saw the knife and they got nervous. And so, right, so one neighbor said earlier that he saw this man kick a soccer ball and other people were living here yesterday. Did you see that? There'd be a lot of people walking up and down the street yeah. when he's mm -hmm. kicking the ball. But not directly at people or rousing people or anything like that. So, so your takeaway from all of this was this was not justified shooting at all. No. Was he kicking the soccer ball around this morning too? He was kicking the ball this morning. Then he sat down for a minute to relax, and that's when the two cop cars and one SUV pulled up. Because we was seeing what was going on. And that's when two officers porched us and asked us if we'd seen anybody with a knife and heard anything, but heard anything who was carrying a knife on him. And we told him no. And then the next The next thing, the one of the officers had a shotgun in their hand. He cocked the bat and hit him with the beanbag two times. And that's when the sergeant pulled his gun out and opened fire right there. How much time do you think passed? Because the beanbag is supposed to slow someone down, right? Did they give him time to kind of quickly? No. And you're saying the knife was never in his hand, it was always in his. The knife was up on his hip the whole time. He, yeah, he didn't have no knife in his hand when the when the officers was around him. You mean to say that it was in his belt or something like that on his hip? Yeah. Visible? Was, was the blade sticking up or sticking down? It was sticking down. Sticking down. And when the, when the last shot hit him, the bullet hit him. That's when he fell, and that's when the knife fell out and he hit the ground. You witnessed all of this. How far is your tent from Not even saying. It wasn't that. Ours is the very first one where the crime scene happened. Okay, so you're what, close. Which color is your tent? It's the green one. Green one, and his color is? His is like baby blue tent. So you all share a share that? Is that yeah. Earlier we saw you. All right, so that was an interview uh, from two of the witnesses uh, who were there on the street and saw it happen. The update from 6.15 p.m., man shot by police has officially died of his wounds at SF General Hospital. Police announced investigation of officer involved. Uh, and this comes from uh, Alex Mack from... Uh, Brokeaster.com. You can read the article. There's also been 
write-ups of this on The Guardian. Uh, one is witness challenge SF police account of homeless man's killing. Police department maintains man was waving a large knife, but witnesses say he was not, as we, as we just heard, uh, that he was not threatening the officers before he was shot dead. And there's an article written by Julia Carey Wong uh, that came out uh, yesterday. And uh, they also mention the SFPD chief, who many folks are calling to resign. That's uh, Greg Sir, who was just saying that the the suspect was waving a large kitchen kitchen knife, although clearly the witnesses say that was not happening. And then they the chief said that the man charged at the officers. So here we see the the police chief kind of make up this narrative that would somehow give police reason to murder him murder uh the person whose name is uh jose we have found out there's been some uh writing online about folks who knew him and his name is jose um so yeah uh there's yeah more articles on this that folks can can find um and in the articles people are all saying that this person was not a threat at all uh, one woman who worked, this is from the article from The Guardian, uh, one woman who worked nearby began crying when she heard who the victim was. Farnaz, who act, asked not to be identified by her last name, said that she saw the man every day when she parked her car near his tent. The man frequently swept the street and sidewalk of trash, she recalled. My husband and I bring coffee and donuts to the homeless on Sunday mornings, she said. My husband and he would play soccer with my son. Another woman who works at a tech company directly across the street um, said she had... Uh, uh, that she had not seen the, she had heard but not seen the shooting and that the victim was very familiar to her. Um, he's on this block every day kicking a soccer ball, said the woman who asked not to be identified. He never said a word. He seemed harmless. And uh, that just seems to be the, the story from folks who, who knew this person. And uh, yeah, so um, we're going to take a bit of a music break and at one o'clock in a few minutes we'll be talking to Tracy uh, Bell Borden, um, about profiling. And, uh, this goes into the, exactly what happened yesterday when police profile people and also going into what the NYPD has said, or the folks who decided to speak up in the clip that we listened to when they decided to profile folks who are the most marginalized. So we'll be back in, in just a bit. Um, stay tuned. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. Again, there's, uh, we're here on 21st in Florida here in the mission. And, uh, yeah, I'll be back in just a moment.
Hello, and welcome back to the weekly review. Uh, uh, hello, Tracy? Yes. Hi there. Hi. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much for, for calling in. We're here with uh, Tracy Bellborden, who is the president of the uh, Kenneth Hart from the uh, Kiss My Black Arts uh, collabor- Collaboration. Yes, Art Collective. Oh, I'm yes. sorry, uh, Art Collective. Thank you yes. so much for calling in. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Sure. So we're um, talking a little bit before about uh, just the, the SFPD, and we we spoke a little bit yesterday about uh, profiling. So I wanted to give you the, the space to talk a little bit about that with your experience in uh, your, your work with that. Yes. Um, well, one of the things that um, uh, we've been really working on as far as with the Kenneth Harding Jr. Foundation. Um, I'm not really sure if everyone knows. Kenneth Harding Jr. was a 19-year-old young man from Seattle, Washington, who was in San Francisco and was shot and killed by the police in the Bayview area. He was shot uh, a third in Palu, mm-hmm. coming off of a, um, the Muni train. Um, it was a over uh, fair evasion, courting, that's what they said. The initial thing was a fair evasion. And um, he was uh, gunned down um, by the police at right there at Mendel Plaza. And, um, you know, one of the things uh, that we've been really working on as a foundation is really work, really trying to establish communication with the community about profiling. Um, we we've already we've always known that there's been some issues as far as with uh, authority, police departments, um, just different areas of authority profiling people, and um, you know in 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 their actions of profiling, usually the end result is that someone is either detained. Um, the the most horrific thing that can happen is that people lose their lives and so one of the things that we're really working on is is to talk to the community and talk to people worldwide about this epidemic of profiling and what it looks like and how we as people we are all lumped into one group now and you know it doesn't matter if you're you're black it doesn't matter if you're white it doesn't matter if you're brown or if you're red or you're yellow um, there's some people, people that are purple probably out there. It doesn't matter, but as long as you are classified within a certain group, yeah. um, you are, you are profiled and we're, we're finding that more and more people are being profiled by authority. And one of the things that changing point for me was, um, a few years ago, uh, my, my um the my the vice president of our foundation al osorio we had gone we go we travel all over the country but we travel you know mainly in 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 california we went down south into southern california a few years ago and we were dealing with some of the deaths that were happening to the brown community in the los angeles anaheim area and we started to find out it wasn't just about brown people but we were finding that we we saw you know young white men who were also being profiled or just you know white people that were being profiled as well and were being killed by the police that no one really even knew about Mm -hmm. but we we started to see that it had to deal with mental health yes and it had to deal with poverty yes and we started to see that you know it didn't matter you know about color 
it, you know, was really about class. Mm. And we started to see that we all were lumped up and we were like fighting against each other when at the end of the day, we're all being profiled and being lumped up in the same category, in the same group. And that that's the issue. Yes. It's not so much about, oh, you know, the police are killing this group of people in this area. It's more about we're all being lumped up into one group. And if you're poor, um, if you're homeless, if you're, you have mental health issues, you end up going through having the same fate as everyone else. Yes. And that became, you know, it, it, we started to see how the division really wasn't, there wasn't any division. It was a lot of unity in our struggle because we started to go to these marches and these petitions and then, you know, or, or people were petitioning things and we were seeing, we were like, wow, we're all together. And it all has to deal with profiling. Yeah. And that seems to be the, the underlining issue that no one wants to talk about. Yes. Is the fact that we're being profiled as a community, you know, in our nation that, you know, which I, I, our nation that has always been profiling, but we're not talking about that. Yeah. And that's what's killing us. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, I feel it's uh, what you're talking about in terms of people wanting to, you know, fight amongst one another and maybe put ourselves into different categories when in the end uh, there's this kind of one oppressor in a way that's uh, yeah. harming all of us. Yes. And it's even, um, you know, with me and um, my comrade Al, uh, what we've been doing is we've been really trying to, to unify communities by, you know, me being a person that is, you know, when people look at me, they, you know, they, they, they profile me, they categorize me as being a woman that is, first, I'm a woman, and second, you know, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm African-American, but when you break it down to what I identify as, um, you know, I identify my, as, a, as an indigenous woman, an Afro-indigenous woman. And so what we've been doing is really going into the different communities and unifying our communities and making people realize that we all are, you know, one, we're, we're, we're all fighting for the same thing. And indigenous people, we t we're trying to take it from just being the indigenous people or what people claim or profile us profile other people as being indigenous and working on it to the point where we look at indigenous people are all over the globe. Yes. And this is a, a problem that's happening to everyone yes. around the world. And, you know, and I think that if we look at it as something that that's a global thing, then it'll, it'll give us strength. Right. And, you know, so when someone does, you know, pass on or someone is, is martyred or killed, that we, you know, we start to claim it as, you know, like this young man that was killed in San Francisco yesterday, you know, my first thing that I got the word was that it was another indigenous person hmm. um, that had been killed. And um, then, you know, you start looking at that and you start looking at, well, what, you know, what was he classified as? He was classified as homeless. Yes. You know, and you start looking at all of those different tiers and to realize at the end of the day, we're still going to all be out there trying to protest and we're still going to have word about this human mm -hmm. who got classified and profiled in so many different ways and chopped up in so many different ways. But at the end of the day, it's still 
he's still a brother. Yes. He's still, um, he still has a family. Um, you know, he still has a community, whether he was dis- displaced or detached from his community. He still is still a part of our, our human community. And I think that it just makes it easier for people to not take a stance. And this is just my opinion. Yeah. It's easier for people to not take a stance when we are profiled mm-hmm. and we're put into an, we're lumped up into a group, Yeah. you know, where it's like, you know, one minute you can say, well, these lives matter, these lives matter. But in another instance, these lives don't matter. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, when I do all, when I go different places, I realize that this, you know, other person may be white or, you know, something that's different than me. They're still, we're still, we're still having the same agony. Yeah. We're still losing our children, and we're not looking at the fact that we're in a system that does not, um, does not even want to address the fact that, you know, one of the biggest uh, gangsters in our history, which was Ronald Reagan. Oh yeah. Um, you know, one of the most biggest American gangsters who shut down all the institutions. I'm 42 years old, so I remember. You know, him shutting down in the in the late 80s, early 90s, shutting down every institution. I remember when Napa, you know, uh, Napa Hospital was shut down because I worked, my first, you know, work that I ever did was working with mental health. Mm. I remember when, you know, they shut those doors and they, the, the, everyone was flooded onto the street. Yeah. But we don't want to talk about the systemic problems. Right. And how do we deal with those people? And those are the people that are, you know, that are killed on the street. Those are the ones that people never talk about. And it's easier, I think it's easier for us to talk about things, you know, things, obvious things that we are not going to win when we don't want to talk about the things that are right in front of us. And so, you know, for us in our foundation, we're not just so much looking at, you know, just the murders. And, you know, the, the crimes that are being, um, you know, commenced amongst us. But we're looking at how do we stop the profile and how do we stop it, stop the, the authority? Because mm-hmm. it's not just the police. It could be security guards. Yep. It could be teachers. Landlords. You know, we have teachers. You know, we have people that are, that are, that are supposed to be, you know, of high standing, the people that we were taught to obey. Yes. That are profiling us, that actually turn us in turn our children in yes. and we lose our children yeah so i read we're just really trying to focus on that yeah and i read recently that there's now more like police in schools than there are counselors which just most kind of definitely, adds to the most definitely school to prison pipeline i had to pull my daughter out of school um my daughter's 20 and i pulled my daughter out of school before you know she was done with school because i sent her to a high school in um, the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. I want to say the name. Well, I will say the name. Logan High School, yeah. which is in Union City, mm-hmm. which is directly across the street from the police station. Oh. And um, the, you know, anything that a, a child could look crazy, look at a person <sighs> crazy, and the next thing you know, they were detained. And I had a big incident with my daughter there, where they had detained my child for like two hours. Um, two, three hours, and um, because of who I am, and, and my, my daughter's third-generation uh, activist, you know, she kept on saying, you know, am I under arrest? Am I being detained? Yeah. She refused to speak to anyone, but luckily, 
few years ago she could do that. You can't do that now. But she, you know, they they detained her, and I and I found out that uh. with with that detention, I found out that in California, um, once you your child steps onto the grounds of the school, the public school district then they're no longer yours and the school does not have to to even call you when they detain your child they can interrogate your child they can do everything to your child and they do not have to call you to even get for you to you know actually help your child and it's a crazy thing and i had to like pull my daughter out of school like i can't do this because i cannot you know my daughter cannot defend herself and then you're telling her she can't even call me so we'll 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 stay at home. We'll stay at home. Yeah, <laughs> Can't do it. that's. So I don't want to lose my child, and then then you and then, and then you get a record. So that record that you get at your school becomes a record that follows you, and it's about the profile. And we got to start looking at the system. Yes. Like the system is set up where they start profiling three-year-olds in preschool. That's that's so disgusting. So if you don't get your immunization shots now, you're profiled you're deemed as something else. So we have to start looking at what system have we bought into? What system are we supporting? We're all out here fighting over, you know, whether we're black, we're white, we're brown, we're this. But at the end of the day, we're all being profiled and our children are losing at the end of the day. Yeah. That's, that's, that's so terrifying. Yeah. And I'm curious as to, like, I was born in 1980. So I was coincidentally born in November of 1980, which was just when Reagan was elected. So... I was kind of now as an adult, I recognize the brainwashing that was happening during the decade when I was uh, a child. And I'm just curious yeah. for folks, what lessons can be taken from experiencing that as an adult um, to see the government act in such a regressive, uh, really terrible, I can't think of the right words, but it was like a terrible way. And like what actions can be taken by the citizens to combat that um, if and when that happens again or continues to happen. Um, well, I think that definitely it's that era was I can't say it was a stepping stone because it had already been happening um, with Nixon. Nixon mm-hmm. had done the job on the country, you know, his his cabinet, his his people had done a, a job. And so it was like that was like a stepping stone I see. for some um, with Reagan, I mean, we have to start looking at when we start electing actors yep. to be officials. Um, you just start to see how phony thing, you know, our government is. Um, we have to look at it. It's all about entertainment. I have not been following that the the elections and everything. I haven't had a TV in my house for almost three years. Yeah. Um, I refuse to watch the news or anything like that because it just it's 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 entertainment. Yeah. Um. And it's because of, of growing up in a time where when you had Reagan and his wife talking about the war on drugs, mm. but then you allow more drugs in here yep. and, and, you know, and people are talking about how the drugs were aimed for the more melanated people. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they devise certain things. And then I just saw something um, yesterday um, on the Internet that was talking about the New York City there's New York City cops that are coming out. Yes. That are saying, like, you know, we know this is over. We're done. Yeah. You know, this, the, the, the campaign against demoralizing 
communities. And, you know, what I've learned is that, you know, the, the unity that we all have, because my family's from the East Coast, and, you know, and, and we've, we've grown up where there's so much division amongst, you know, the Latinos or, you know, the blacks and the Jews and all of this, all of these, di- all of these different things. At the end of the day, we're all the same. Yep. You know, Absolutely. we're all the same. We're all like going through the same thing. Um, I just think that, you know, growing up, growing up in the 80s, it was very, very difficult because I grew up in the crack era. I grew up when I watched, you know, families be at one point and then a year later lose everything. I've been in Oakland and I've watched how Oakland has changed. I watched how grandmothers who had homes, who who had come here from the South in, in a matter of a few years lost everything. Mm. Lost everything, you know, sons smoked their, you know, daughters smoked their whole riches away. And then to watch, like, what I'm seeing right right now with the gentrification that's going on in Oakland and how we're fighting just to be here. Yes. And you see these tents set up and, you know, people are, are, are trying to fight to live here and, and, and it's hard. I just, that era... Reagan and them set up this this wheel. Mm-hmm. They set up this wheel for us, um, and 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 it's this division that we have is making it so that we're not even strong enough because we're not even feeding each other. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why we do our community feed mm-hmm. because it's about you know feeding each other. If I feed you, if I give you something to eat, if I do something for you, then you know what I'm on your side. Yep. Yeah. You know, a little bit, you know, I, I feel like, you know, maybe not today, but in a year's time, when it's time to fight, you won't know to come to me. We're going to be together. When I come into your hood, you're going to know, like, she fed me. Yeah. She clothed me. So it's, you know, it, I think that we have to go from a grassroots uh, perspective in a, in, a, in a grassroots level and build a community up yeah. because we've been so broken down and you know we've we've allowed gangsters like you know reagan and nixon reagan um you know even carter had his little hand in it mm-hmm. i grew up with carter and just you know with clinton and now his wife is potentially it's like you know she talk about the super predators well mm-hmm. who are you talking about yep. you're talking about my children yeah you're talking about my children that weren't even born, but you were talking about my peers yeah. at that time. No one wants to talk. That right there is a for sure sign of profiling mm-hmm. that no one wants to talk about. And yeah. now we're like, oh, but she was saying super predator, but you know she's the best president. Nope. What do you talk about? You know, it's like, what, what go on? Like, she... <laughs> She's the worst, but she she started off with profiling. Yeah. Her husband set the ground for profiling. Yeah. And, you know, we we could all jump in the street and say, you know, F the police. But when we do that, it's it's not changing anything. Yeah. It's not changing anything. I've watched. I've been a I've been an activist for over 25 years in Oakland. Mm-hmm. It's gotten worse. Yeah. I remember, you know, you lose a friend a day. I mean, a friend a year. Now, my peers are losing their children. Yes. I have to, you know, call my child up every day and be like, just, you know, call, let your mama know, you you know, just let me know you're okay, because you never know. Yeah. 
I don't even watch the news, so I, I wouldn't even know somebody shot over there. I wouldn't even know. Yeah. So, you know, because our children are so profiled, you know, you, if you have a daughter, even if you don't have a son, your daughter's going to have a boyfriend, and you, you're going to have to deal with the fact that your daughter's boyfriend may be profiled. Yeah. And it also goes into, like, with the media, uh, just the, the story that they spin you know, from oh, either God. from the police, but then even the media wanting to criminalize people and, and uh, victim yes. blame. Yes, because the same thing happened with with Kenneth. When Kenneth when Kenneth Harding Jr. was killed, before his mother was even contacted, because you know we don't even you know we don't have to even go into what happened. Just go into the reality. Before his mother was even contacted, he was demonized. She wasn't even told her son was killed. She didn't even know her son was killed before he became a rapist, a thug, a career criminal. I don't understand how melanated children can become career anything at 19. Yeah. You haven't even lived to have a career. Yeah. Only poor so-called minorities, even though we're the majority, minorities are career anything that's bad he was a career criminal how do you become a career criminal at 19 and a half i don't understand that you had he doesn't he didn't even have a career but the news even the pictures that they had posted up of him were like they had like a mug shot from some time because, you know, when you're profiled or whatever, you can get pulled over or whatever. But the picture even made him look like he was like a demon. Mm. And the fact that, you know, we always try to say he was a baby. 19. Teen. Yeah. We didn't make up these numbers. Yeah. These numbers were given to us. We had our own culture and language. But when you give us something, 19, only black and brown teens are like super predators but you know a little teen in other communities can just be like oh my god something happened and you know everybody wants to have an uproar yeah but he was a teen he was still a teen but the way he was profiled was something totally different and that's the issue it's we have to start tackling that and Mm -hmm. that's where my whole thing is you know when it comes into the community you're dealing with the community and dealing with with my own protest is that, you know, trying to change people's perceptions of, of what our children are supposed to be like and how human are they? You know, I come from, you know, a a group of people, you know, we say black, you know, African American that are deemed three fifths of a man still in the record. We have to, you know, we have to look at that. Yeah. So we'll never be deemed as as human to certain people, as long as it takes three of us <laughs> to make one person. Yeah, it's a crazy thing. <sighs> so we need to change that. I don't. I, I have to look at you know changing the profiling of that. Mm. Because I can't. Yeah. I don't have three children to give up just to save one. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know we're in a cult, we're in a in a community in in a in a in a country that doesn't even want you to have more than one child. Yeah. How dare you if you're poor or in certain communities? How dare you have more than one? Yeah. Because you're profiled. Yeah. 
It's even so. If I'm in, a, if I'm told that it takes three of me to make one person, <laughs> I don't have three children to give up just to save one. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems work that way. It <laughs> also just reminds me of one way that folks are looking at the the bills being passed, like in North Carolina, for instance, and with the the anti LGBT bills, where it's really like a not even wanting people to exist, like not even like letting people use the bathroom, and mm-hmm. people being. being people being profiled by the bodies they've been born into and not fitting into a certain box. And it really, the, the argument has been that they don't, the legislators or whomever, they don't want, they don't believe us transgender folks even exist. And it's trying to do whatever they can to make sure that we, we either don't have just the, the rights to, you know, exist in the world and therefore they can just, just to to just live. Yeah, just to to live and to just be seen. To live. Yeah. Just to have the basics. I mean, just to have the basics. But you know, but it but it it's 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 funny. Well, it's not funny. It's 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 obvious that um, you know when things need to be adjusted, they're totally adjusted for certain people. Yes. And I feel like that's a problem, especially and that all deals with classism. Mm. Because I. You know, I I watched when we were, people were fighting for the rights to marriage a few years ago. Yes. And being in San Francisco, I watched. But once that right, once it became legal, they let everything out. They, they, people walked away from it. The same people that were advocating. Yes. They, they turned, they, they, they got what they needed. They used the community. Yep. And we got to start looking at that. Yes. Because I, I, I'm a vendor, I'm an artist, and I would go to San Francisco Pride and vend. And I watched the year before, you know, the right to, for marriage. I remember that, that the, right before it, it's funny how as soon as Pride weekend, they announced that, okay, it's, you know, they have, there's a legal right. And, I watched how the years, a couple years before then, how people were advocating, and then I watched the year after the the government or the state had said yes, and I watched how many children, they were mainly black and brown children, poor white children on the streets of San Francisco partaking in the celebration mm-hmm. that they had already been partaking in, but the same people that were there for rights and justice weren't there. Yep. They were not there. And I saw the predators out there mm. about to attack our children. So I can't do it anymore because I'm like, it's scary to me to watch how many children don't come home mm. after this. Yeah. How many do not, how many are just missing after this, parade in this this festivity over the weekend because no one cares it's all about getting what you want and then that certain class of people walk away yep and it's a huge problem yes it's a huge problem that i feel that we need to start tackling we got to stop being used by a system that doesn't even want us Mm. in it Mm -hmm. and stop accepting a system that is not made for us if we understand where we even get the the police department patrols, you have a patroller. It comes from slavery. Yes. It comes from the only reason why we have patrols or police is because they were trying to patrol the slaves, slave yeah. patrollers. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. 
So what do we we expect them to be any different? And, you know, are they supposed to be kind to our children when there's a system that will, you know, I, I hear that if you're 50 and under, there's a certain age. It's like from 14 to 35 or 40, you get the most money for a prisoner in California. Huh. And then after 40, you know, you're, it goes down a little bit because you're really not a worker. You're, you're like the price, it's like slavery. Yes. Yeah. But they want to get you at 14. They can get you at 14 because you can get like a hundred thousand dollars a year just to be in the system. Yep. But it takes $30,000 for education. Yeah. And the education that's really not going to teach nothing. Yeah. But we're accepting this and we're all into, you know, getting, trying to be, you know, part of that apple pie. Mm. When actually we might be eating sweet potato pie. Yep. Not apple. Yeah. We got to get on one accord and realize that it's happening to all of us. It's not just one. Because I, I always think about when I think about the uh, the LBGTQ, um community, like how many just no one talks about. I've worked in the field of social services in San Francisco. So I already know that I, I remember when I used to work at a program and, you know, how many men would come to me and talk about going to the shelters and how they were raped, yeah. going to the shelters. And no, they couldn't tell nobody. Yeah. And, and he, I'd be like, well, why you couldn't tell the police? Well, the police are out here doing it. Yep. Yep. And he'd be like, what? <laughs> yeah. And it's that profiling or just being profiled and, and being profiled as being nothing. Yes. So I, I definitely get it where, you know, we, we're in a system that across the board, it doesn't matter. We're in, a, we're, we're in a country, you know, by a system that, that eradicated the original people of the land mm -hmm. and have them in behind, you know, little fences right now. Yep. Yeah, I read a, a story oh, earlier. Yeah, I read a story earlier today about how in September, uh, uh, prisoners are, across the country are calling for a, a complete work stoppage. And mm. so, um, just as, as we were saying, just this that idea is that, interesting. yeah, I guess, you know, I would love to, um, hear more about that and figure out how to support that. But, yes. You know, the repercussions of that is, is will be enormous. Yes. Will be enormous because it's going to be like a Nat Turner. That's like, that's like doing some Nat Turner shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Excuse my language. But you know, like that's rebelling against the system totally. So. I think that as as a as the people that are on the outs, we would have to figure out how to help support that Absolutely. if we can. But yes. that would be a total rebellion. Yes. Um, and we already know that this country doesn't do well with rebellions. No, no, it doesn't. But it's but that's long interesting to, do. to know, and that's a very encouraging because. I'll jump right on in with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the more the more we can help one another. I got I got a, I got enough people in there. That, you know, got to figure out how to support the people that are in there. Yes. You know, yeah. we you know I have people that are serving time over what. You know, I I you know I, yeah, we're all suffering. We're all suffering behind this profiling, um, that's going on. And you know, we think about how many people of color don't have. And, you know, people that are that are integral in our, our community, you know, our pillars in our community have been snatched mm -hmm. and been taken away. Yes. And the way that, they, you know, and then we get to the point where back down to profiling, you know, we get we, we get hit up upside our head about who they are and what they do. And, you know, that to the point where, you know, we don't even help them. 
Yes. And not realize that the system is set up so that we can't. Right. Can't afford a phone call. You can't, you know, oh, they, yeah. they take you from Oakland and they send you to Virginia or something. I'm in the process right now with someone very dear to me, very close and about to be shipped away. And we're trying to deal with, like, oh. how do we deal with the children? Like, how how the children been with their parents for 20 years? And how do you deal with that? Yeah. Like, they're gone. And, and it's something you can't do. And it's because, you know, and that person's profiled. So no one even wants to even walk away. Well, they don't even want to tread on that water. Mm-hmm. They're like, and I'm good because, you know, that that's just, you know, they, they say it's this. They say it's, you know, and I'm good. I'm good. It's like, <laughs> but their profile, like, that's not even what the real is. Yeah. And it's, it breaks and it's a up huge families. problem because it goes from the core all the way out. Yep. Yeah. You know, your stomach ache is like, you know, your stomach ache, you know, reflects the, the bad skin on your face. It might, you know, mm-hmm. it might be the food you ate. And then it, everything is, is swelling up. Your feet swell up. You get, you know, your face is all messed up. Your skin is all ashy. Yeah. Just by what you ate. Yeah. And that's what I feel like profiling does. It, 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 it eats at the core of everything. Yes. Everything. And we lose our children. We lose our fathers. We lose our mothers. We lose our sisters, brothers, our aunts, our uncles. Yeah. You know, in some cases nowadays, you know, you know, we, we lose our, um, we lose our grandmothers and grandfathers. Yes. You know, a child can call the police trying to get help for a parent and that child is dead. Yep. Profiled. Yeah. Can't even get help. You know? Yeah. So I'm crazy. Wondering, like, I mean, part of the solution is to convince the folks who would call the police to not call the police in... But we have to learn how to govern ourselves. And um, you're right. We have to learn that, that we cannot do that. But that's where it comes into play with community organizing. Mm -hmm. You know, with us, when we see the community, it's, it's a way to show solidarity and we have to find ways to show solidarity within a community one of the things that we do as a foundation and 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 trying to solidify a huge mass of people is is with like everything that's going on with kenneth in the bayview and you unifying ourselves with that community and then what had happened to um, to Alex Nieto. Yes. And unifying the black and the brown community. Um, being able to show, because like, I don't speak Spanish, but my comrade, he speaks Spanish. Mm-hmm. And to have that, that diversity. Yes. Um, so people can see, you know, like your deeds, you know, we have to get back to, you know, your, what, what you do, your works, your yes. works being what it is and who you are, you know, um, that is the biggest thing that we have to do is like show that we, we are solidified with each other Yes, yes. and that we, no matter what the barriers are not that big. Yep. They're not that, you know, it's like, what are we, what, what are we fighting for? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, we can all get along. I, I go to events where I, I've never, you know, I, I hadn't gone to a rosary until I had to deal with um, 
Andy Lopez, and I was going to all of those different rosaries, but it showed the collaboration. Yes. You know, the fact that, you know, we cared enough about, you know, this young man and the fact that we were all one. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, we have to learn how to govern ourselves. You know, the, the, the fact that I just, when I look at the, the everything that's happening with the, the Alex Nieto and the Mario Woods coalition, you know, just the fact that they're, they're unifying and showing about governing the community is amazing. It's amazing to me because you have two different fronts coming together, and at the end of the day, they walk away, they won. Yeah. And the importance is, is that importance is that that these babies have been lost, but these parents are being actually healed some kind of way. And the fact that you know we're we're, we're getting families to heal each other is phenomenal. It's not what they wanted us to do. They wanted right. us to be, you know, on against the wall and have borders with each other. Yes, and that's and why you know you can have somebody like Trump that talk. Like he does. Like, are you serious? Like, mm-hmm. what? What do you, you know? But at the end of the day, I'm browner than I'm. I'm. You know, some people. I, I have people in communities that are browner than me. <laughs> Speak another language, but we still won. Yes. We're still going through the same thing. At the end of the day, they still look at you as being as whatever they call one thing, <laughs> and they look at you as the same thing they call me. So yeah. why are we why are we fighting? Yep, absolutely. End of the day, they just don't call you what they call my people. Yep. But they treat you worse than they than they they can treat us because they you know we ain't taking it. Yeah. So you know we have to learn how to govern ourselves and learn that we as a community we have each other and that you know we can take care of each other and if something does happen we have to also make sure that we have people who are really down to making some things happen. You cannot go and disrespect anyone in the community, but if we don't have people that are going to stand up elders and, and righteous brothers and sisters that are mm-hmm. going to say, you know, this is not cool, then it's going to be a hard thing to govern ourselves and to be able to get the, um, you know, to self-police. Yes. So that's the key. Yes. We have to police ourselves. Yeah. Uh, speaking from like a, I guess a, a member of the LGBT community, I feel there's certainly there's definitely like a lot of racism and misogyny within the LGBT community and a lot of classism as well. And I think mm-hmm. um, in the 80s with the HIV and AIDS epidemic losing so many people, there are not those elders who are there yes. to who would have like artists and thinkers and teachers, scientists, people who would have really kind of created. Uh, a different way of being. And so I feel a lot of the younger LGBT folks don't have elders to look up to and don't even know, necessarily know that like bars used to get raided and people would be fired for either cross-dressing or for being gay. And I feel like there's well, like yeah, a lack definitely. of history. Yes. And like, I just went to go see Mighty Real. That was Oh, it was so good. Oh my God. Uh, I went to go see Mighty Real, my, my bestie Al took me. And I was, I, I even though my birthday was in February, we went in March um, my cousin uh, was uh, transgender from Newark, New Jersey, mm-hmm. and so I, I got introduced to Sylvester Young by my cousin, and um, so I learned a long time ago about the struggle, even though, you know, that wasn't my struggle, but I understood it, and that was one of the biggest things with that show, like, you know, the fact that... Um, 
you know, Dwayne was saying, you know, he was like, you know, he was like, the fact that when he did the show, it was like about, he, he, he emphasized about, you know, how the laws were changed, you know, how things, it was very hard for, for Sylvester. Like, it was against the law yeah. to wear lipstick. Yep. Yeah. Fingernail polish. Yeah. You know, it was like that, like, Sylvester did everything. Yeah. Everything to change that. And, you know, regardless of what I might feel, you know, about my own, you know, uh, being a, a heterosexual woman, I respect that. You know that that paved the way for a lot of people, and I rem- and, and and my cousin died in shame mm. because of classism and because of being profiled. Died, you know, alone in in shame, and you know, so it, it, it's it's a huge thing. That at the end of the day, that's still somebody's child. Yep. That that he came from, or she came. Let's say he. She came from my aunt. Yeah. That was still she gave birth to him and became and she and then she was born. Yeah. You know, and, and that right there is, is very um we we have we have to start protecting each other. Yes. You know, and it's not about the weak and the strong. It's not about that. We have to start protecting each other and governing ourselves because you know, we have children out here. Yeah. You can't, you know, you, you can't determine what you want. Like, America is not a good example of, of of what you're supposed to be. No, it's not. And how, you know, like, you know, you you got to be like a soldier or something mm. like that. You got to be a soldier. Like, like mm. we're taught that what's funny to me is that, you know, what we teach our children is that you can legally kill as long as you become an officer. Yep. And I tell people that all the time. I was like, you got to be really careful what your children watch. Because I just watched the 007 Spectra, whatever it was, mm-hmm. Spectra, something. I forgot the name of it last week. But, you know, 007, the agent 007, he can kill everybody in the world. Yep. But he was an agent. Yep. He was an officer. So we're teaching our children, you can legally kill as long as you come on this side. Mm-hmm. You kill or be killed, but come on this side and you can legally kill. Yep. That's a problem. Yeah. That's part of that classism. Yep. And that's part of that profiling. Yeah. It goes hand in hand, and we have to look at, you know, how does that affect us? You know, how does it affect our children? Our children are being segued to something else that's not even, you know, like little robots. Yeah, brainwashed. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's affecting us as a whole. And um, at the end of the day, they're just going to find a new group of people that will find another standard of, of uh, profiling. And pretty soon, you know, now you can't say, well, because you wear high heels or you got eyeliner on, you know, they can't, they can't do away with you. But I know you're very, I know you're cognizant of the fact that in the 80s and the 90s, they did do away with those people. Yeah. And, and right now, they're still doing, they don't even talk about what happens to them. Yes, yes. They're, they're unnamed. And like I said, when Pride happens in the, in the last weekend of, or the, I think it's the last weekend of, of June, mm-hmm. how many never get talked about? Oh, That's yeah. my fear. Yes. I go and I watch and I'm like, oh my God, this child is out here. Like, whose child is this? And I'm looking across the street at this person that I'm like, <gasps> he looks like he eats people for a living. 
and he's looking at this child. Yeah. Like, and then, but there's, I know that no one's going to listen to that child when, it, when, when he or she wails yes. for help. Yeah. And that's a problem. Yes. That's another thing. It's just, it's just, it's just as bad as, as losing your child on the street. You yeah. know, and, and, and my thing is but also my thing is, is, is when it comes down to profiling, it's not just about the authority taking our children. The biggest part of profiling is that we're profiling. We're being profiled so that nothing gets taken care of. Yeah. We just lost, um, you know, Chris Rassidy. He was uh, one of the young men that was on the platform with Oscar Grant. And I don't know if people understand that. That day that when Oscar died, there was a group of young men that went on that platform. Out of those young men, six men, seven, six, seven men were on that, seven men were on that platform. But the ones that were visual, that they're visible, there were six men that were visible on that platform. Three of them are dead. Oscar's one. John Two Caldwell is another, but because John Two Caldwell was profiled, no one talked about his death because it was hand, it was community crime. Mm. Chris was killed, oh, I think, two months ago, two, three months, two, not even three months ago. But because it was a community, and I, from my understanding, they still they will not go get the people that did it. It's like the police won't do it. Huh. That was, you know, but he was he's profiled. That whole case is being profiled. It won't. So no one is even. There's no uproar. There's no outcry. Because the community is conditioned. All they gotta hear is that it's something. You know, it could be this. It's related. It's this and that related. Huh. And we have mothers. Six young men. Three are gone. Three it's, have like disappeared. It's devastating. Oscar, one of them. It's not it's getting worse. We're talking about out of from January first, two thousand and nine, we have a total of five children without fathers. <sighs> five children. You know? And profiling is the result of it. They were profiled on that train. Yeah. They lost their life. They were treated a certain way because they were profiled. Yeah. And they've been profiled ever since. Oh. And it's, it, we, so we have to look at how to stop this. Yes. So if, uh, if folks want to get involved with the, the Kenneth Harding Jr. Foundation, um, what would be some ways folks can go about doing that? Well, one of the ways is... Um, they can always contact um, Al Osorio. He's a contact person. So Al Osorio mm-hmm. is O-S-O-R-I-O, Osorio. Mm-hmm. Um, he's on Facebook. I'm on Facebook, but I'm not as easily obtain- obtainable on Facebook. Yeah. Um, and um, they can definitely reach out to him Um I mean, you can always just Google the Kenneth Harding Jr. Foundation, and there will be ways to get in contact with us there. Great. We are a Bay Area organization that, you know, we usually have people who come and sign up and get in, like how you did on the front line. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So we don't have like a website right now or anything, but we just, we, you know, we go, we go to different community events so they can reach him. Um, and just like, I guess just Google us, um, try to, you know, however you can get in with us. Um, we do come We're going to, we, we do come We've been doing community feeds. We had, we haven't been doing it as much, but we are going to start starting uh, as of last month. We're going to be doing them continuously. Every month will be third weekend, third um, Saturday. We're going to start doing Saturdays okay. on third in Palu. Great. Um, or third in Oakdale, I'm sorry. And um, we'll be having our community feeds. Um, I'm trying to think, how can they really reach us? I guess we have to really start establishing a better way of reaching us. <laughs> okay. But that would be the best way is to go onto Facebook. And you could just go on Facebook and just look up Kenneth Harding Jr. Foundation because we do have a page there. Great. Excellent. And for the, uh, for the Kiss My Black Arts Collective, is there anything coming up you'd like to promote? Oh, most definitely. Well, um, what we're doing, uh, Kiss My Black Arts, so, so people know Kiss My Black Arts is an art collective, and what we are, we're a bunch of artists, Bay Area artists, who have come together, and even though it says My Black Arts, um, it's not dealing with race or color, because we're a group of multicultural people. Um, we're all about art, and we're all about putting art out. You know, the thing about, you know, um, when you think about color is that when you mix all colors together, you mix a whole bunch of colors together, it ends up the water ends up becoming black anyway. Yeah. And so what we do is we do social justice art. They can always reach us on Instagram at Kiss My Black Art. Um, we, they can see all the stuff that we're doing. Um, we're traveling. We're traveling artists. So May in May we will be in... Um, in, in Durham, uh, North Carolina, but in May May seventh, we will be at an event um, in Oakland with the Hiro from the Hieroglyphics, um, the Hieroglyphics Building, and we'll be doing some work there. Um, I mean, just hit us up on Instagram, and you can find out because all every artist has a different. We have all different things that we're doing, but we work we work on social justice art. We work on social justice branding and social justice equity, and it's just, it's about getting some messages out and talk about what's going on in the community. So if someone passes, like the young man that passed yesterday, you know, there'll, there'll be some art that we'll be, you know, collaborating with each other to get the word out. So what we do is we just, you know, really spread the word out, like how I'm doing right now. So yes. this is something, you know, getting out there, telling people that we're out there. Um, and just loving on the community. So they can always hit us up on Instagram underneath Kiss My Black Arts. Great. Well, thank you so much for, for calling in and for speaking with us. And I really look forward to seeing you again soon. Yes, most definitely. And thank you for everything. And especially, you know, for your service at the last feed that we had. We enjoyed you. And um, it, takes, it takes that kind of accountability so, you know, for you to come not knowing who we are and just get in and jump in and, and make it happen. We really do appreciate yeah. that. And we hope that we can get more people to jump in when we do have our events to help the community. Absolutely. Well, take care and we'll be talking soon. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes, you have a blessed day. You thank too. you. All right. Thanks. Okay. Peace. Peace.
Uh, so thank you so much to uh, Tracy Belborn for calling in. And since Sylvester was mentioned, we'll be ending the show with Sylvester. Stay tuned because uh, we'll be playing an episode of Women's Magazine with Global Val next. Uh, you're listening to Mutiny Radio. Again, uh, we are doing some fundraising here at Mutiny Radio. You can check out the info on our Facebook page or on the Mutiny Radio Facebook page or the Weekly Review Facebook page. Um, there's shows here every day of the week. Lots of good stuff happening. Good people here as well. So keep on listening and we'll be back next week with some more news and until then here's Sylvester I can't seem to sleep at night just keep thinking about you 